So how many of you like to eat? Pretty rhetorical question. Yeah. How, how many of you have ever just, have ever really, uh, and let me preface this, I'm very analytical, right? I, I mean, I, I want to know how things work. I want to know why they work. You know, if the tree falls in the forest and no, you know, does it make a sound? I want to know that. Like, that's, that's just how I'm wired. Have you ever thought about why you like to eat? For most people, it probably ain't a big deal. But have you ever thought about why? Just the act itself? You just think about it for just a minute. Yeah, I agree. I agree, right? But just think about it. It's a funny thing in it how God created us. Like, we cannot survive without eating. I mean, it's a necessary part of our life, right? Um, it's such an important thing that a few weeks ago we talked about this. Jesus said, pray that, that God would do what? Give us our... Daily bread, right? So it's important to our lives. We need it. But you know what? God created us in such a way as humans that separates us from the rest of creation when it comes to this. You, you and I have the ability to experience food in a way that the rest of creation doesn't. Think, of, think about if you were a cow for just a minute. And your diet was grass and straw, maybe some grain every now and then, right? Think about how, how bland that would be. And just, I don't, have you ever been around a cow chewing their cud? They just don't look like, I mean, it, it doesn't look enjoyable, does it? I mean, they just, you know, they eat because they have to, right? But God has created us in a certain way, a specific way. Man, we get to not only eat to sustain ourselves, but we get to enjoy it. God gives us taste buds. We, we can tell different textures, temperatures of food. We can tell sweetness from sour and salty. And I believe all of that is a gift from God. God wants us to enjoy this gift, right? And, and we're, so we are blessed to be able to enjoy something as wonderful as eating, the taste of food. Um, there's a, a guy, a member of our church, older gentleman, who uh, uh, can't uh, taste anything. Could you imagine that? I talk about that all the time. I said, man, I mean, how do you, how do you cope, brother? He said, man, you, you got to eat, right? You can't taste anything either? Really? That's crazy, man. It's like, I, I, I don't know what it's like to not taste anything, right? I've had them burn off before, but it seems like they grow back. But, you know, <laughs> just we take for granted how wonderful a gift it is to enjoy those things. But, but food is just not given to us just because it tastes good. It fills us up, right? Food gives us a sense of, of satisfaction, doesn't it? Anybody ever felt satisfied after a good meal? I mean, just, you know how it feels? Just, man, just lean back and just, ah. You know, eating releases endorphins, man. It makes you feel happy and, you know, there's joy in it. But, you know, it's also eating and being able to provide for your family is a sense of accomplishment, is it not? For billions of people... All around the world, the measure of success for them is the ability to feed their families. So food brings about a sense of accomplishment. It serves many purposes in our lives. But one thing in particular, one thing I want us to focus on about the issue of food and eating is that it also, if we think about it, shows us how dependent we are on the most basic things. Just go without it for a while. See where you are when, you, when your belly is empty. Man, you know, you want to see the condition of your heart? Go on an empty stomach for a while. 
John Calvin said, no one can tell the, the evils that lie within a heart better than one who has an empty stomach. Stuff just comes out when you're hungry, right? You get frustrated, you get fretted, and it's amazing how, how that happens in us, that just one small thing, like not having food, really shows us what's in our heart. As a result of that, food then can become what? A pacifier, can it? Food covers a multitude of sins, right? Isn't that how the Bible is? That's not right, is it? Love covers a multitude of sins. But really, we feel that way sometimes. You ever heard the phrase, uh, let's eat our emotions or eat our feelings? Anybody ever done that? I have. Have a bad day, right? Nothing just seemed to go right, and we go straight to that refrigerator. You know why? Because that's one thing in our life that we can control. And I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to eat my feel, right? Food acts as a pacifier sometimes. And what that does is it shows us a deeper-rooted issue in our hearts that we're going to talk about tonight as we get into this issue of fasting. And so this issue of fasting in the American church today especially is really a foreign concept. We've all heard of it, right? We all uh, have maybe a base-level understanding of what it is, but maybe we don't practice it. Maybe we don't see the need for it. And so tonight we're going to really talk about that. And so let me just kind of refresh why we're even talking about this issue of fasting in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount with something known as the Beatitudes, right? Which are characteristics of kingdom people. If you belong to the kingdom, here's what your life will look like. Now, we know that our life doesn't always look like that this side of eternity, but in those Beatitudes, he points us to whom? Himself. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those that realize they cannot get there on their own. That's why I'm here, right? So he shows us the characteristics of kingdom people, but then he pushes the envelope a little bit further and a little bit deeper into showing what the attitudes and actions of kingdom people look like. So he says, listen, you're not going to get in the kingdom just if, as long as you don't murder. It's not even about murder. It's about harboring hatred in your heart. You may think you're going to get into the kingdom because you're not an adulterer, but man, have you lusted? And then he, he kind of caps that off with this really, really hard saying. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you're not going to make it. And then, to cap that off, in verse 46 of chapter 5, he says, he says you must be what? Perfect. perfect. As your Father in heaven is perfect. Woo. Well, that disqualifies me. But the reason he says that is to show us, listen, you can't get there on your own. That's why I'm here. So the Sermon on the Mount is pointing continually to the one who's preaching it, right? It's about me. It's about me. But then he pushes it even further to go past attitudes and actions into spiritual motives. Not only what do your actions look like, but what's in your heart? that's leading you to make those decisions and act the way you act. And so he says um, that there are certain actions, certain motives, rather, in our heart that shows who we really are. Remember in Luke chapter 6, he says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's in here ultimately always comes out, right? And so Jesus is wanting us to see where our motives are and to gauge our motives, he uses three acts of righteousness um, as examples. 
That's where we've been for the past several, several weeks. All good Christians should practice these acts of righteousness, right? And it shows us the motive by which we do things. The first thing he talks about was almsgiving or giving to the poor. If you're a Christian, you should give to the poor. That's what he's saying, right? But here's the key. It's not about what you give. It's the attitude in which you give it. It's the motive in your heart by which you give to the poor. So it was commonplace for Jews in the day to give alms, right? They would give it to the temple. They would give it to the beggars outside the temple. They shared what they had. But the reason for that was what? Jesus said, you do this to be seen and honored or recognized by those around you. And he says, that's all the reward you're going to get. And so the way that Christians give to the poor with pure motives is that he says, when you give, you're supposed to give in a way that your left hand doesn't even know what your right hand is doing. And we talked about what the literal Greek means of that is, it's like having money just packed in your pockets and just reaching in there and not even knowing how much you're getting out and just giving it away. That's what giving with the right motive is. You don't keep tabs on what you give. Right? That's the proper motive. So the second one was on prayer. What is the position or the condition of our heart as it pertains to prayer? And we spent a lot of weeks on the issue of prayer, right? Because Jesus thought it was so important that he actually gave us an outline of how we should pray, right? And he says, when you pray, you don't do it on the street corner so that everybody can just see how great an orator you are, or how lofty your speech is, or how long you can pray or babble on. But true prayer, the prayer that's effective and correct is when you go into your closet and you close your door and you pray in secret to your Father who hears in secret. And then He will reward you. And so it's praying to God as our Father, not our butler. We spent a, long, a lot of time on that. And so tonight, we're going to move into this third act of righteousness that proves our motives, which, as I said earlier, is fasting. And I'll be honest with you, it's probably not on the top ten uh, of Christian things today. For most of us, it's probably not even on our radar. We probably don't wake up uh, in the morning and go, I should probably fast today. Most of us don't. Some of us, maybe we do, right? Um so, so when we come to this passage, like a lot of passages in Scripture, we can go, man, you know what? This is 2015. This is the age of grace. I don't need to do this. And so we just kind of skip over it, right? Go, what else is pertinent to my life, right? What is going to help me today? And we just skip over these seemingly outdated issues in the Scripture. But here's the thing I want to I urge you to, to consider tonight. If we, if we skip over this, if we say, you know, it's, yeah, Jesus talked about it, but man, that's not something that's really relevant to us today. I promise you, we are going to miss something that is incredibly vital to our understanding and relationship with God. There is a certain aspect to knowing God that can only be achieved through the issue or through the, the practice of fasting. There is a connection to God that we don't get any other way. And we're going to see that uh, tonight. So what I want to do this evening is, is, first of all, I want to spend the majority of the time talking about what fasting is. 
you know, we, we may have, a, like I said, a base level understanding of what it is, but man, what truly is fasting? Why do we do it? And then I want to move into what Jesus has to say about it before we close. So Matthew chapter 6, starting verse 16, Jesus says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy as the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces and their fasting, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So here's the first thing I want you to notice about this this passage. Um, Jesus assumes here that we're going to fast. Notice he, he doesn't say, and if you fast, if you choose to fast, if that's something that you feel comfortable doing, then here's how you do it. He doesn't say that, does he? He says, when you fast. So it is implied here by Jesus that this is a spiritual discipline that is a part of a normal Christian life. It's not extraordinary uh, to be a Christian and fast, right? Um, and here's the thing. You know, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't look at uh, these other spiritual disciplines like prayer and, and say, well, you know, you can be a Christian and never pray. That's like being married to my wife and never talking to her. How, how can I stay married to someone that I don't talk to, right? I heard a wise pastor say one time, it's absolutely impossible to have a relationship with someone that you don't talk to. Can't do it, right? So it would be absurd for us to say that, yeah, you can be a good Christian in right standing with God, in close fellowship with God, and you don't ever have to pray. That'd be absurd, right? If I preach that to you, get rid of me, right? But then when it comes to this issue of fasting, this other spiritual discipline, we say, well, you know, that's, I don't know. I don't know if that's really pertinent to my life, right? And so when we look at these spiritual disciplines, we have to understand we place the same emphasis on all of them that we would on one. We understand the importance of prayer. We understand the importance for most of us of giving to the needy. We should understand the same importance in fasting before our Father. It's so important that Jesus specifically dealt with it. So what is fasting? Fasting uh, was an accepted and expected spiritual discipline in Jesus' day. I believe it is an expected uh, discipline in our day today. And it started all the way back when God gave the law in Leviticus. The first initiation of a fast was given when God initiated the Day of Atonement. Now, what's the Day of Atonement? What was the Day of Atonement? Anybody remember? Sin was forgiven. That's right. That's exactly right. What would happen on that day? Do you remember? That's right. He would purify himself, man, from top to bottom. And he didn't miss a step, right? And he would purify himself and he would get the purest animals. And he would go in and he would go into the Holy of Holies and make atonement covering for the sin of the people for the whole year. That's exactly right. And so on that day, as initiated in Leviticus, the people of Israel were to, and this is what God says, you are to humble yourselves and do no work. We know what it means to not do any work, right? But what does it mean to humble ourselves? When you look at the Hebrew in that passage, it literally means to afflict yourself. That sounds kind of morbid, right? 
But when you get into the Hebrew meaning, the phrasing of it, it literally means to deprive yourself of actual food. So here's what he's saying. On this day, this day of atonement, when the high priest goes in and he atones for your sins, you're not to work, but you're also not to eat. That whole day. So it wasn't a vacation for these people, right? It wasn't just sit back and click the TV on, which they didn't have TVs, but you know what I mean, and just take it easy. This was a day to be uh, observed and honored by all the nation of Israel. The high priest wasn't the only one who was doing something on that day. They were to humble themselves, deny themselves food so that they could focus on what was happening that day. Their sins were being atoned for for the whole year. No light matter. That's right. And so it was something that they were to observe and honor with denying themselves food. All right? So we see fasting is a part of the people of God's lives since the beginning of the law. And so the question is, is it still to be common practice in the church today? So here, here's the thing, um, and, and please just take it for what it is, but I believe we live in an age today, you know, the church has had ages, seasons throughout all of history, right? We live in an age of grace, but we live in an age in our generation, in our culture today, of cheap grace, right? Uh, it's been coined easy believism, whatever you want to call it, but it's it's cheap grace, and, and, and it's been a gospel that has been focused on conversion rather than discipleship, right? I think, I think that's an accurate statement, that, that Christianity, on the most part, in, the, in America, focuses on making converts instead of disciples. That's what we're seeing today. We're seeing people say, yes, I believe in God. And, and, and a lot of people say, yes, I believe in Jesus. But yet there's nothing about their life that would say, yes, that's true. And so we live in this age where we see the gospel being portrayed as grace is free. Absolutely it is. Conversion is necessary. Absolutely it is. But there's more. It's about repentance. It's about turning from your sin. It's about becoming a new creature. It's about discipleship. It's about taking up your cross and following Him. That's why, you know, I don't know if this is a good practice or not. I quit asking people for Christians. I say, are you, do you follow Jesus? Because here's the thing. Jesus is exclusive. And it's not even do you believe in Jesus. Because we can believe in the existence of Jesus all day. Is He your Lord? Are you following Him today? And so we live in this age where... We, we believe and we're sold a bill of goods that says, I'm not required to do anything other than love God and love people. And on the surface, that sounds great, doesn't it? It sounds freeing. I, I just have to love God and love people. But my question is, do we know what that means? What, is in, what all goes along with loving God? When Jesus quoted that scripture of the greatest commandment, what did he actually say? We're to love God how? All your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. I mean, that's all-encompassing, is it not? So he wasn't just saying, love God. He was saying, everything about you, 
has to be committed and in love of God. Yeah, he's got to be betrayed. Yeah. And then he says, second is the same. Love your neighbor as yourself. Mm. And so when we say love God, love people, do we understand what this means? And so the way that we understand what this means and the way that we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength is that we bring our lives into total submission to him. So, so we come under him when we say that we love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, how do we do that? How do we bring our lives into submission? Obedience. Mm-hmm. Obedience to what? His commandments. John 15, 10. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Amen. Right? So, so we understand very clearly, and we'll, we'll get to that in just a second, but the way that we bring our lives under the submission of God is that we um, follow or we do practice these spiritual disciplines because these spiritual disciplines while they're not essential to salvation right salvation is by grace through faith however that grace through faith produces in us a desire to carry out these disciplines because these disciplines help kill the old nature that lurks within us helps us die to ourselves so that we can fully live in jesus for the glory of god however let me let me just say this many of us have been taught as long as I believe in Jesus, I don't have to change my life, or I don't have, there doesn't have to be any change. Uh, there, there doesn't have to be a continual following after him. I just have to believe, right? And we've made that word very anemic. And what, what does it mean to believe? You know, James said the demons believe. And they tremble. And what does it mean to believe? And so this belief has to come along with evidence, Right? Genuine faith in Jesus produces a desire to practice these spiritual disciplines. We won't always do it. We won't always do it well, but we will desire to do it because we understand that it's going to produce in us the effect or the the reaction that God is looking for in our lives. It creates us or makes us more and more into his image. However, let me give you the other side of the coin because I want to talk about this too. Um, some of us may be tempted to practice these self-disciplines, these spiritual disciplines, because we believe that they will somehow put us on God's good list. Right? If I do fast enough, if I do pray enough, right, if I do give enough money, then the good will outweigh the bad, and he's got to let me in. Right? As a matter of fact, that's what Jesus is preaching about here. Don't be hypocritical. Don't put your eggs in a basket that's not going to make it. Right? And so what he's saying is, listen, the mere act of fasting or giving to the poor or spending time in prayer will not earn you any more or any greater spot in God's favor. Jesus makes you acceptable to God. Not what you do, who you are. Okay? Jesus said this is what made the Pharisees guilty of hypocrisy. They were practicing something that didn't, that didn't adequately reflect what was in their heart. They gave, as, as Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.5, they, they had the appearance of godliness, but they denied its power. They didn't possess the power that comes with the godly act. So we might look at this and say, well, if, if fasting is not essential to my salvation, and some fast hypocritically and then maybe, man, I shouldn't mess with this because I'm going to do it wrong, right? 
or maybe I'll be tempted to fall into that. That's not the right way to look at this discipline of fasting. We will not reach our potential as Christ followers if we fail to obey all that he commands. The assumption by Jesus is that you will fast, right? Fasting is a God-initiated practice that still is necessary for his people to practice. So, here's what we do. Here's what fasting simply is from the standpoint of of definition. Uh, The New Testament um, talks about fasting in such a way that it's, it's closely equated with the gospel's work in our life. Fasting helps us connect deeper with what the gospel truly means for us. The Greek word for fasting is nestio, which literally means, I mean, verbatim means abstaining from food. Okay? Now, can I fast from something else? You can, yeah. You can fast from other things. Um, But let me just say this to you, and this is just an observation based on what I see in the Scripture, what I believe the Scripture is trying to portray. Um, We can fast from from anything, and and it be effective. But throughout Scripture, when you see God calling people to fast, when you see the practice of fasting in the New Testament, it was always from food. Now, we can say, well, that's because that's really all they had. Right? They, they lived to work so that they could eat. Right, But the point is, that was the, one of the most important things in their life. Right? They needed it. So much hinged upon it. Right? Remember we talked about the other day, um, a, a few weeks ago, about for most people, um, they would go to work, they would earn a day's wage, go to the market to buy their food for tomorrow. Remember that? And so it was important that they had food. And so for them to give that up meant that they were giving up a huge part of their life. And so I want to focus on that just, just a second. Because here's the thing. I think when we talk about the issue of fasting, I think we try to give ourselves an easy out sometimes. By saying, well, you know, I can fast anything. You can. But when we're given the choice to fast whatever we want, most of the time we're only going to fast what's convenient. Well, I'll fast from Facebook. Some of us need to. I'll fast from Coke. I drink Diet Coke. Right? I'll fast from TV. And here's what we find out. When we get to the end of the fast, what we've realized is that, you know, we really hadn't done anything more than just kind of grit and bared it through. You know? It really didn't cost us anything. It really didn't suffer that much, if we're honest. But we can say and we can stamp on it, I fasted from this, right? And I'm just giving you personal experience, too. I've done the same thing, right? Or, you know, I'll fast breakfast on the third Thursday of the third month of the third year. We do do stuff like that, right? But when God talks about it in Scripture, it, it is literally abstaining, depriving yourself of something that you need, something that you depend on. You know, I was talking to somebody the other day about fasting. It was interesting. It was funny. They were like, man, I just can't fast from food. I, I'm just, I'm not going to do that. I'll fast from whatever, but I'm not fasting from food. And I said, why? And I kid you not, this is what they said. Because I love it. And I was like, yeah, me too. That's exactly why we need to fast from it. Right? Because we have a dependence upon it. 
that if we're not careful, can become a hindrance to our walk with God. Now, I understand that there's health issues. People, people can't fast for health reasons. And now, I'm not talking about because you get a headache or because your stomach hurts. I'm talking about people who are diabetics, people who have legitimate issues where they can't fast from food. That being the case, don't fast from food. But fast from something that's important. Fast from something that you need in order that you correctly understand what it is you're trying to give up so that you can attain what God wants you to attain. But for the rest of us, I believe it's very important that we try to fast from food. And here's why. Anybody ever heard of Matthew Henry? Man, biblical scholar, great man of God. Listen to what he says about, about this, because it really puts things into perspective about why the Bible talks about fasting from food. He says, um, almsgiving, prayer, and fasting are the three great Christian duties, right? In them lie three foundations of the law. And he says, by them we do homage and service to our God with three principal interests. Get this. In prayer, we offer our souls to God. So we do when we pray. In our alms, we offer our purse to God. In fasting, we offer our bodies to God. So in other words, fasting is the means by which we bring our physical bodies under the submission of God. And that's important. If we, um, it's how we fully give ourselves totally to God. I want you to think about that for just a minute. Um, I ask us quite often, how many of you here are believers? What about your life is completely given to God? You don't have to answer out loud, just think about it. If we're truly believers, our souls have been given to God, right? If we tithe with our money, if we give to the poor, if we see our money as, as God intended and we are to be stewards of it, we've given our purse to God. But now here's the, the question. How many of us have given our bodies to God? Paul talks about that a lot other in other ways than just fasting, right? He talks about sexual immorality. Flee from it. Why? Because there's no other sin that affects your body like sexual immorality. Right? Our body is what? A temple of the Holy Spirit. The way we treat our body is a reflection of how we view God in many respects. And so the question is this tonight. Have you given your body fully to God? I think if we're honest, all of us could say, mm, maybe not. <laughs> Working on it, hopefully, but maybe not. Um, so, so here's what we understand. Fasting is the act by which we deny ourselves physical satisfaction from food in order, and this is important, in order that we may gain a greater satisfaction from God. We deny the physical to gain the eternal. It's removing the thing that oftentimes can dull our desire for something greater. Remember we talked about earlier, I eat my feelings, right? If I eat, that emotional roller coaster I'm on or the things that are on my heart just kind of seem to get dulled down a little bit, right? Pacifies us. But when we remove that from our lives, we're faced a lot of times to deal with some hard stuff, right? 
And it's in that moment that we're driven through hunger into a deeper desire for God. So in a nutshell, that's what fasting is. Now let's talk about why we should fast. There, there's several reasons in Scripture for why we fast. People fasted uh, to connect um, or to um, confess sin. There was sin, so the result was fast. And I'll just kind of quickly give you these for time's sake. Um, one example in particular, Jonah chapter 3. God says, Jonah, go to Nineveh, declare judgment on the people, right? Remember that? So, he does that. You are under the judgment of God. What does the king of Nineveh do? He tears his clothes, puts on sackcloth and ashes. He repents, but then he calls for a nationwide fast. Not just of humans, but of animals. Everybody fasted. Why? So that God would have mercy on them. And you know what? God had mercy on them. Not because they fasted, because they repented. But the fasting was a result of their repentance. Daniel chapter 9 um, shows Daniel fasting in response to the sin of his people, right? And so then the result of that was the revelation that God gave him about what was going to happen to the people. Number two, people also fasted in the scriptures because they had a pressing need or a petition. There was a burden on their heart that they needed to hear from God. Right? And Second Chronicles chapter 20, King Jehoshaphat was surrounded by three nations that wanted to kill him. Right? Israel was stuck in the middle. And they didn't know what to do. And so what did King Jehoshaphat do? He proclaimed a fast. He said, fast so that we can hear from the Lord. We need help. Right? And we've got to keep in mind... Again, they weren't fasting to get God's attention or to manipulate God to do what they wanted him to do, right? It's not a manipulation tool. Rather, they were fasting to put themselves in the right perspective to hear from God when he spoke. Sometimes there's too much noise, man. And sometimes the noise comes from our belly. Sometimes we cannot hear correctly because of what we have dulled down our bodies with. Number three, the, the New Testament um, there's fasting as a means of self-discipline. Now, I didn't bring the book down here because I didn't know if we'd have time to read it. Uh, A.W. Pink uh, did an exposition on um, a Sermon on the Mount, and he quotes an early church father um, called Payson. And Payson talks about how there is uh, two things. There's extraordinary fasting, and then there's ordinary fasting. There is fasting that for a Christian should be practiced on a daily basis. And basically what he's saying is that we control what we put into our body biblically. Let me give you an example of what that means. Paul in 2 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 9 says, I, I discipline my body, right? I beat my body into submission so that, in order, and so that after preaching, I myself might not be disqualified. What do you think he's talking about there? He's talking about making sure that his body is submissive to the will of God instead of the other way around. Now, that includes sexual purity. It includes uh, taking care of yourself. But it also talks about controlling what we put in our body. It's a real thing. It's a problem, right? Philippians chapter 3, verse 19, Paul says that there are those who have made their belly their God. What does that mean? They've given themselves over to impulses, right? We know what, it, what it's like to impulsively eat. 
right? And so Paul says that we must be very careful to make sure that we keep that under submission to the Father. That we don't go out of control. And doctors will tell you, our bodies know when they're full, right? I forge on through most of the time, you know? I'm a fighter, right? That's right. It takes that. It takes that long, you know. I'm a fighter. I'm gonna finish that plate. It's sin. I laugh about it, but it's sin. And so here's the thing. This is a it can be a more serious issue than than we realize, and it's a more common practice than we want to give credit to. That's what the New Testament shows us. But here, here's the fourth one. This is the one I want to focus on before we get into what Jesus is saying here. Um, Matthew chapter 9. Go in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 9, if you would. This is, this is to me, I think, the most important reason why we fast. Matthew 9, uh, verse, starting at verse 14. We'll just read 14 and 15. We won't get into 16, 17. Anyway. Um, then the disciples of John, so this is John the Baptist, came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So what is Jesus saying here? This, this passage, I think, explains... Um, probably one of the deepest longings of the Christian heart. He gets to the root of what we really crave as Christians. Here's what's going on. The the, the Jews, these are Jews. John the Baptist was a Jew. The Pharisees, of course, were Jews. And John had a, a sect of disciples that followed him. And so they practiced Old Testament law. They practiced Judaism um, and so a tradition in Judaism, now I want you to understand the difference, a tradition, not a command from Scripture, but a tradition in Jewish history was that they fasted twice a week. Most scholars believe it was on Monday and Thursday. So they fasted weekly, twice a week, okay? And so there's, they're on one of the fasting days, and John's disciples come to Jesus and say, look, man, we're fasting. We're doing what we're supposed to do what are y'all doing? Now, I, I can kind of sense a little bit of jealousy in that, can't you? Mm-hmm. We're starving to death over here, and y'all just feasting up a storm. What, what gives you the right? Right? Jesus says, look, here's the thing. We've we got to understand this. Um, and, and this is so important. This, this will help us understand why we, why we fast. Mm-hmm. Notice what he says in verse 15. Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Man, when you mourn, what, why do you mourn? What's, why do you mourn? Because someone you love is not with you. It's a loss, right? You're missing something. And Jesus says, here, look, the, the bridal party or the, the wedding party doesn't mourn when the bridegroom's there. It's cause for celebration. Who's the bridegroom? Jesus. And so here's what he's saying. Being with me, being with Jesus was the epitome of fullness and satisfaction. Look, they've got everything that they need. There is not a longing in their heart. But the time is coming when I won't be here. 
There's a time that's coming when I will not be where they are. And then they'll fast. You see, while Jesus was with them, there was no desire that would surpass them being with Jesus. There was not a need that they had that would supersede his presence. And so they were rejoicing. They were joyful. Even though they didn't really realize it then. After, after he was crucified and resurrected, they realized it. But Jesus represented the fullness of all the disciples' desires and needs. He met it in himself. But as we said, there's a day that came when Jesus would be taken away from them. And that satisfaction and that completion that Jesus brought would be gone. And he said as a result of that leaving them, they would begin to fast again. So what does that mean for us? How do we connect that together? Here's what he says. They'd fast, not so that Jesus would come back to be with them. That's not where they would fast. But they were fasting because of the longing of his absence in their hearts. And so this is important. Fasting serves as a reminder of the incompleteness of this life. There is nothing in this life, food, money, whatever, that will truly satisfy. It always leaves us wanting more. We eat to get hungry again. Fasting reminds us that this life and everything in it is incomplete. There's a longing that we have in our hearts to be filled up in all areas by the completeness and fullness that only Jesus brings. And so we fast to say that we have a hunger that goes deeper than our stomachs. We fast because we crave Jesus more than food. We fast to show ourselves that Everything outside of Jesus leaves us wanting more. But we realize He is the ultimate satisfaction of everything. And because of this, because of, of the correct way of fasting, it produces in us a joy. Fasting produces joy. Here's why. Because in our hunger, in our lack in our desiring, and our longing, we are reminded that one day that longing, not just physically, but in our heart and in our soul, will be satisfied when we see Jesus. Amen. So here's what we need to focus on in our fasting. We do without food for a certain amount of time to remind us that Jesus is better than food. How do you know that Jesus is better than food? Because he's satisfied. How do you how do you how do you know that until you've fasted? It's hard to know that Jesus is better when you're full. Just like it's hard to depend on him when your refrigerator's full. Right? How do we know that he's better until we give him a chance to show us that he's better? That's why we fast. To show ourselves, to remind ourselves that, man, this, this pit in my stomach, this hurting, this, this hunger, man, it doesn't compare to the hunger that I have for God. You know, some people I've heard it preached like this. 
You know, if you're fasting and your hunger in your belly is uh, deeper than your hunger for God, you got something wrong. I don't think that's what Jesus meant to, to, to bring about through this. I think the hunger in our belly is a reminder of the hunger that our souls have for Him. In the beginning and the end. He is. He is and everything in the middle. No one will come before me. That's right. Not even our belly, right? right. Hopefully. So that brings us to what Jesus said in Matthew 6. It's pretty self-explanatory, but I want to go through it before we close. And so when you fast, don't look gloomy as the hypocrites. Right? For they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. So here's what, we're, here's what Jesus is saying. The appearance of your body matters and is important in fasting because the appearance of your body is a reflection of what's going on in your heart. If I look gloomy, if I look defeated, right? if I walk around acting like I'm in agony as these hypocrites did, then, then here's what I'm saying. I'm wanting them to know how much I'm hurting myself for God. Right? I want them to see how, how, how pitiful I am and how much I'm suffering for the cause of Jesus. Right? We know some folks like that maybe. I don't know. I do. I've been one. We're trying to bring pity on ourselves by manipulating God and manipulating others so that they'll see how pious we are. We've talked about piety in here before. You know, piety piety is, is basically the display of righteousness without being righteous. It's a righteous act that doesn't always have a righteous foundation or motive, right? And so Jesus says, listen, when you do that, when you fast and you walk around defeated and, oh, I'm just so, oh, poor, pitiful me. You know, somebody give that boy a biscuit. Hair, <laughs> if we have it, right? <laughs> by washing our face, by looking presentable, by looking joyful. Why? Again, our appearance is to be a reflection of what's in our heart. And so we're not pointing to anything lacking in our fasting. Rather, we are showing the joy that true fasting brings, which here's the joy, the promise of the fulfillment in Jesus that outweighs a full belly. Sounds like a paradox, doesn't it? We've had a lot of those in the Sermon on the Mount, haven't we? To be full in our emptiness, how does that happen? Fasting is a hard painful act but it's joyous and it's a discipline that has deeper spiritual implications than we may realize but here's what it does it accomplishes in us a mindset that we can't achieve any other way we, we can't understand this aspect of desiring God any other way the focus isn't on doing without the focus is on how sufficient Jesus is for every longing and need of our life. So what we do in our fasting is we ask for a portion of that fullness this side of eternity. We, we ask to be, to be filled up this side of eternity with what we know we can expect on the other side. I have a, a quote that's hanging on my wall from John Piper, and I look at it a lot. I, I, I pray that I can live it out more than I look at it. But here, here's what he says. 
He says, feast with thanksgiving to show that God is good to give us such gifts. Fast with joy to say that God is better than his gift. Man, that's what a great saying. So, so we feast.